Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Rachel Landis, a National Policy Director at Generation Ratify, the Young People's Feminist Movement. The organization is a youth-led movement to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment and advance gender equality in the United States of America. We speak with Rachel today about her work, the Equal Rights Amendment, and how we can and must build a coalition of young people across the country to lead an intersectional feminist revolution. Welcome, Rachel. Hi. So you're one of, you, you mentioned three national policy directors at Generation Ratify. Could you first tell us what is Generation Ratify and what do you do? Okay, uh, to start, thank you so much for having me today. It's such an honor to be here. Um, Generation Ratify is an entirely youth-led, youth-run organization that is working to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment into the Constitution as well as fight for gender equality on a lot of other different fronts. So that's a little bit about what we do as an organization. We're just kind of trying to make sure that the ERA, which is shorthand for the Equal Rights Amendment, we're trying to make sure that the Equal Rights Amendment is ratified into the Constitution and just making sure that we have a more equitable society for all women and gender minorities. What is the history of Generation Ratify? If it's youth-run and youth-organized, can you speak a little bit about the original funding and support for the organization? Yes, I absolutely can. So in the grand scheme of ERA history, and I can go into this a little bit more, uh, the ERA was a huge political movement during the second wave of feminism, which is often called political feminism. It was originally drafted in the 1920s, but it was kind of ignored. And then finally it like came up to Congress in the 1970s. It was passed, it was ratified by only 35 out of 38 states necessary to ratify. And it died in the early eighties. And it kind of hadn't been talked about for years and years and years until in 2017, uh, Nevada actually ratified the Equal Rights Amendment in their state becoming the 36th state to ratify the amendment. Then, Illinois became the 37th, and our founders, who are from Arlington, Virginia, learned from one of their state delegate members that Virginia was well on its way to becoming the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment. And in order to get an amendment federally ratified to the Constitution, it needs to pass both houses of Congress, and it needs to pass in 38 states. So Virginia being the 38th state to ratify the Constitution, to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment into their state constitution was going to be a huge deal. So these five high schoolers decided, you know what, this is something we're passionate about and we want to start working on it. So they created a coalition of students all across Virginia to work on getting the Equal Rights Amendment passed statewide. And then when it did, they said, you know what, this fight is unfortunately not over because of a lot of complicated things that have to do with the deadline on the Equal Rights Amendment, which, quick spoiler alert, is very unconstitutional. Um, but they said this is going to be a national fight, so it's time to take this organization national. So they expanded. We now are on the ground in at least 23 states, and we have 
members from all over, and we are working to make sure that the Equal Rights Amendment gets ratified federally, as well as making sure that general gender equality legislation and policy goes through both on the state level and on the federal level. Wow. So when you say that it's, is it entirely student run? So in other words, even the fundraising is done by peers such as yourself? I will say, yeah, we are lucky enough that we have some incredible fiscal sponsors, but we do also run our own fundraising. Obviously, we have had help from several incredible adults along the way who have mentored us and taught us how to best function within these spaces of the equal rights uh, movement. But when it comes to our own meetings, our own internal operations, we are all students, all young people, which is a really incredible environment to be in. I have to say, I was getting a little emotional when I was preparing for this conversation because one of my pet peeves is the fact that there aren't enough young people who are interested in this issue. Actually, there aren't enough people who are interested in this issue, including women. So do you happen to know what your gender breakdown is in your amongst your membership and your staff? That is a great question. I can't say that I know exactly what our gender breakdown is. But I do know that we are do have a lot of gender diversity on our team. We have we have basically a representative of just about any gender you could think of. We have lots of women, lots of men, lots of non-binary folks. We do have a wonderfully gender diverse team, which is something I'm so grateful for because one of the things that we really try to emphasize when talking about the Equal Rights Amendment is that it doesn't only benefit cis women, it benefits trans people, it benefits non-binary people. It's something that will help all gender minorities, not just one the one gender minority of cis women. Right. And I mean, I think if anyone understands equality in general, they'll understand that equality helps everyone. It lifts all boats, so to speak. So I'm just curious, what was your journey like into learning about the ERA? Was this something that you learned about at school or you talked about at home? That is, oh, that is a great question. So I was very fortunate to grow up with two parents who were very involved locally, politically. So I grew up in a local politics club. I was like the pet young person there. I say that as a joke. They were all very loving and caring, and I still love working with them to this very day. But I remember growing up, there are a lot of particularly older women in the club who would talk about battles politically that they like wish they hadn't lost. And it'd be stuff like nuclear dearmament that they were protesting for. And one of the things that got brought up the most actually was the Equal Rights Amendment. When I was much younger, I didn't really understand what it was. I was just kind of vaguely aware that it was an amendment that never got ratified that would have been great for gender equality and feminism, particularly intersectional feminism. But I didn't learn as much about it until I actually learned about Generation Ratify. When I started working for Generation Ratify, crazy to think, I think just about exactly a year ago, I was onboarded last April. Whoa, crazy moment. Congratulations. Thank you. I applied to Generation Ratify knowing that it was a gender equality movement, knowing that they had a focus on the Equal Rights Amendment, but not knowing a lot of the nitty gritty. I learned a lot through working with Generation Ratify, particularly those first couple of weeks, that first month or two. And it is so 
incredible the education they've been able to provide, not just to me, but to our members, to people outside our membership when we collaborate with other organizations. I think because the Equal Rights Amendment is so steeped in like legislative jargon and it's something that's a little bit older, young people tend to not really know as much about it. I was fortunate enough that I at least had a vague awareness of what it was. One of, I think the most incredible things our organization is doing is educating other young people about the amendment and why it does need to be a really big fight and why we need to get people involved. So take it from someone who now spends a lot of time working on the ERA, who didn't know that much about it this time a year ago, we are out there doing the work to educate because it's just as important. Great. So I think we should probably, for the benefit of our listeners, um, have you read the actual text of the proposed amendment. Okay, so I can for sure do that. So the text of the proposed amendment, it comes in three sections, but I can say uh, inarguably the most important section is equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That is really the, the key part of the amendment that it will nothing will be denied uh, on the basis of sex because while we've had court cases that say that, it's not something that always holds up under strict scrutiny when it gets to the courts, meaning that it can really be on a case-by-case basis whether or not employers, educators, landlords are allowed to discriminate based on sex. And hugely, we've seen this become a bigger and bigger issue. We have bills about it in our state and federal legislatures, like the Equality Act, which works really hard to make sure that housing or employment cannot be denied, particularly to um, members of the LGBT community. And it functions kind of under the same umbrella of it. You can't discriminate on the basis of sex. And in one way or another, that discrimination still is on the basis of sex. So passing the Equal Rights Amendment would be huge because it would provide this umbrella for all of this other incredibly intersectional legislation that we need to get passed because it would fortify it as entirely constitutional. And no state legislature that says, hey, I don't want that to have to apply in my state, they wouldn't be able to sue and take it to the Supreme Court and expect to win because we would now have in the Constitution, hopefully I'm not repeating this too many times, that under the law, Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on the account of sex. So making that a true part of the Constitution, not to be decided by the courts whenever they see it fit to see a case, not to be decided by the legislature or to be overturned by a different legislature would be a huge step in all types of equality going forward. So the way I describe it is you mentioned strict scrutiny. It's a legal um, standard by which discrimination of uh, protected classes is gauged. And sex is not at the same level as race and other protected classes. And so to the extent that the ERA benefits women specifically, it gives us sex-based rights and sex-based protections against sex-based discrimination. And right now we don't have that. So let's talk about some of the areas where women would benefit. Oh, by the way, I have seen the film, the documentary Equal Means Equal, probably like a dozen times. I think that's like a must-see film. I've screened it for my community, for every young person, regardless of gender, and certainly for 
every woman. But, you know, I, I think obviously men should watch it too. But I think this issue of gender equality hasn't gotten the same level of attention from our culture as racial equality has. And I think that's kind of why we're having this conversation, right? To really activate people to recognize that this is important and to demythologize for many people that we've arrived, you know, that feminism isn't necessary anymore. So, so you've seen the film, I'm guessing, right? And do you think I it's actually accurate? have not seen the oh, film? You haven't seen it? Oh my God. <laughs> I'll have to put it on my oh. to watch list. You have to watch it. It is so amazing. The filmmaker is a very active part of the equal rights movement. And I know that she has been working with Professor Wendy Murphy, also in Massachusetts, who's done some pro bono work on behalf of the ERA and is one of the few very loud voices to to call attention to the need for it. And so, yeah, I think you should do a screening for sure in your dorm, have everybody watch it and do a discussion. I mean, do they, um, do people in your school and your community know what you're doing? That's actually such a great question. The answer is I try my best to tell everyone I can because I love talking about the Equal Rights Amendment and nine times out of 10, if someone gets me started, I refuse to shut up about it at this point. Um, that doesn't mean I've been able to spread it to my whole school yet, but it's definitely a work in progress. Okay. Whatever, you know, strategy you, you decide to use, but anyway, it's amazing. Uh, it's on Amazon prime. Yeah. So the film actually does a great job of connecting all of the issues. So it talks about obviously pay inequality, pregnancy, discrimination, domestic violence, incarcerated women, foster care and sex trafficking. And I don't know if I missed anything, but but it connects the dots between all of these things. And so, like you said, it affects women in the empl employment situations and education at home. So let's talk about employment. How does it benefit women in employment? First and foremost, this is, like I said, when I said that the Equal Rights Amendment is an umbrella to make sure that we can put in all this anti-discrimination legislation and make it constitutional, that can easily start with abolishing wage gaps, making it illegal to pay women less for the same work as men. Additionally, since we know that there's a racial wage gap as well as a gendered wage gap, and not even that, but a gendered racialized wage gap, if you look at a black woman making 66 cents rather to a man's dollar rather than white woman's 78, 79 cents. That is a huge intersectional help and economic equality, not just for women, but for black women specifically. And then for black people generally, because when one member of our community starts to succeed, we all start to succeed. It's also a huge, it'll be a huge help in terms of making women more present in the economic environment, we talk a lot about Equal Rights Amendment as a means to childcare and education access. A huge issue we see is women seeing less returns, less economic returns on their education than men do. So this would be a huge help. We can make sure that women who go to these incredible institutions of learning are still getting paid just as much as they deserve as for all that they've worked to get to where they are today. Additionally, for young mothers in the workforce, the Equal Rights Amendment gives us space to make sure that they can't be discriminated against for 
taking a maternity leave, even for young fathers, the Equal Rights Amendment protects their paternity leave. We've seen a lot of issues of men's paternity leaves having to be a lot less because they might not have been the one to give birth to the baby, but that is still discrimination on the basis of sex. So um, additionally, you know, helping with childcare, making that more affordable, but would be a huge help to young mothers and women in the workforce with children. So that is a broad overview of some of the biggest economic impacts, something like the Equal Rights Amendment could have. But even that broad in view, overview, I think, shows just how hugely it could benefit women in the workforce. So let's turn to the sort of public sector. So seeking assistance from law enforcement with regard to domestic violence, healthcare. Uh, inequities by gender, which of course also is impacted by race, how would it benefit women in those areas? Right. So to start with seeking help from law enforcement, I think like if there's a conversation this country has been having for the past almost a year now, it's that our law enforcement system does not function the way it necessarily should. And that's something we talk a lot about within Generation Ratify of how do we fix these structural issues while still getting help for people who need law enforcement at those particular times. But to start with, for women seeking help in getting law enforcement, we hear time and time again of women who have been sexually assaulted, who get turned away at the door and laughed at by police officers, aren't given rape kits. And if they are, that those kits sit on shelves for months and months and even years and nothing ever comes of it. The Equal Rights Amendment would make that stop because when was the last time a man was laughed out of a police station for saying there was an, I was, you know, someone aggravatedly assaulted me in an alley. It doesn't happen in the same way. So that would be a huge first help. For healthcare reforms, we talk a lot about those who are most disadvantaged by the healthcare system and how it can make it better for them. For the Equal Rights Amendment, we talk a lot about particularly Black mothers who have a much higher mortality rate in the U.S. than non-Black mothers, particularly white mothers. It's a, the U.S. has one of the highest infant mortality rates generally amongst countries that are similarly, similarly developed to us. And most of that is borne by the infant mortality rates of Black and Indigenous mothers. So it would be a huge help in terms of making sure that they have the health care they need to be fully supported in those instances when they're giving birth, their prenatal care, their postnatal care, everything from their very first checkup to their last appointment with the doctor to make sure that the baby's healthy, anything along those lines. Additionally, we see huge issues of Black women being told by their doctors that, or not being believed by their doctors, just generally, oh, you're not in that much pain. Oh, This diagnosis can't possibly be what you actually have. And it'd be a huge help if we could look at those individual instances of malpractice and see those as discrimination on the basis of sex, as well as discrimination on the basis of race, because it is both. It's impossible to separate one part of yourself from the other. Like I said, at Generation Ratify, we talk a lot about the intersectionality of all these issues and how gender equality and racial liberation are just so intertwined that it's impossible to fight for one without fighting for the other. So if we could look at those particular instances of what I would call neglect by doctors as both racial and gender discrimination, 
we can make huge leaps and bounds into preventing them from happening again. Yeah. Thanks for that, Rachel. I mean, I, you know, our community, the Engendered Collective really aims to provide a support for survivors of domestic violence and any kind of gender-based violence. And I know from having watched the film that um, former Justice Scalia, you know, was very pivotal in chipping away at all of the sex-based rights um, and allowing for sex-based discrimination, you know, to persist. And one of the things that he he referenced in the film was the Castle Rock v. Gonzalez case about protective orders or orders of protection and how basically he interpreted it as um, they weren't mandatory. They weren't necessarily mandatory. So it certainly is a very, very important framework for us to enforce police protections or legal protections. And, and I just wanted to point that out too. So, but, you know, getting back to the employment sphere, two areas that we didn't talk about this too much, but giving you equal rights, uh, having the ERA, I interpret, would give you, would give women the right to have ownership over their own body and make decisions for themselves without external influence or prohibition. So for example, the right to choose whether or not you have an abortion is such a hugely politicized topic. And then if you combine that with employment wage gaps and wealth gaps that have accumulated because of generational wage gaps, that's something that any employer that's really profit-driven is going to oppose. And that's something that I think is reflective of one of the biggest challenges that we have in this movement is getting corporations to recognize that equality is going to benefit them. Have you had any experience dealing with partners on that corporate level that are actually in support of this? So while I can't say I've had experiences with that, I can actually tell you that in my labor economics class, you touched on exactly what we're talking about right now. And it's something that's so fascinating to think about from a theoretical perspective and definitely something that's like been on my mind for like, how do we attack this from like a policy perspective that truly discriminating against people in the workforce literally forces you to lose profits. In fact, it doesn't like save you profits. And it's all based on just an employer's idea of this person is going to work worse. And it's literally just all in their heads. Discrimination is not profitable for anyone. And I've personally been thinking a lot about that lately, just because it's, you know, been the topic of my class for the past week. But it's definitely something that I'm interested in seeing what we can do more about and how we can educate on that, that not only is the wage gap wrong and immoral, but it's inefficient as well. Like it truly, there is no purpose behind it. It's just discrimination for the sake of discrimination. So I am very curious to see how that affects our fight for equal pay. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of our biggest impediments is getting what I've read about is that that's basically sort of like the biggest lobbying group against it is corporations. Because once you have the ERA ratified, corporations, you know, from a federal level down to um, state levels and local levels, they would need to eventually get in line and adjust the pay gap. And so 
for larger corporations, maybe they have some wiggle room, but for medium to small size, like entrepreneurs, potentially, they may not have that. So we, we need to definitely come up with a strategy to get them to educate them, like you said, educate them about how it's going to benefit them in the long run, right? It's kind of like the minimum wage. <laughs> it's not helpful to have a whole bunch of people who are contractors working for you part-time, less than minimum wage, and not being able to do the work because they're cobbling together multiple jobs and not being able to afford transportation. And I know this from having worked in workforce development with young people who are out of school or out of work, that those practical logistics, you know, is such a big part of how companies can retain them. And, and so to the extent that minimum wage and a living wage actually is necessary so that you can have a workforce that is reliable is, is seems to be such a hard thing for companies to understand. No, I also want to echo Generation Modify obviously supports raising the minimum wage to a living wage. It is one of our like biggest economic uh, quality priorities. But from another perspective entirely, you make a really good point about raising the minimum wage, stabilizing the the workforce. I just finished a presentation actually in a different one of my classes on how corporations don't want to raise the minimum wage because it like lessens their consumer surplus in the wage market as they're like, you know, the consumers of the labor. But they put it under the guise of, oh, if we raise the wage, more of you don't get hired because the idea of like the minimum wage, it means that, you know, their demand goes back because the price goes up. So people get fired. And then beyond that, more people are entering the labor force because they say, oh, look at this wage, it's higher. But a lot of studies have found that most of the companies that would be most affected by a raise in minimum wage are actually perfectly capable of absorbing it and not firing anyone if they just reshuffle a little bit of their finances internally. Additionally, they found that, like you said, raising the minimum wage actually causes less uh, labor turnover because it allows people to stay working in these jobs full time. It's not an issue of, oh, this job will pay me $3 more if I work there the extra three hours, so I have to leave this job. You know, It stabilizes the labor market, which is incredible. And you know, just... Anytime I'm talking about the minimum wage, the answer is we need to raise the minimum wage for everyone involved. Yeah. And I know that there are a whole bunch of women out there who are quote unquote anti-choice. You know, they call themselves pro-life in quotes. And so they, I could see how they are against the ERA because it would, I'm guessing it give us the ability to have control over our own bodies and choices, healthcare choices, and prohibit these state laws that are chipping away at Roe v. Wade because, you know, they don't exist for men. There, there are no similar laws on the books for men policing what they do with their bodies and, and whatnot. And so how do you address uh, educating? I know you're, you know, you're focused on targeting young people, but what is your perspective on the maybe young people too who are anti-choice? How do you d- address this issue with them? So I think the first place to start is to try to like, not necessarily meet them where they're at, but understand where they're at, like understand where they're coming from. I 
personally, I'm like really staunchly pro-choice because I, you know, believe it as like a fundamental human rights issue that like woman, anyone who's able to give birth should have bodily autonomy and should be able to make that decision for themselves. People are anti-choice for a garden variety of reasons. A lot of them having to do with maybe their religious beliefs. Maybe it's just what they grew up with around the house. Maybe it's a cultural thing. So I think it's important to acknowledge where people are coming from because then that gives you a better understanding of how you're going to convince them that you are in the right there. So a lot of what I do, especially like in these situations, is I start by asking them why. And I say like, okay, why do you believe in that perspective? Just really giving them the floor to talk. And then from there, it's a lot of, okay, well, if you look at it from like this perspective, maybe that isn't as clear cut as you think it is. There's a lot of, I think also misinformation is something that really keeps the pro-choice, I mean, the anti-choice movement alive. Misinformation about how much it would cost for the government to uh, make reproductive rights really legal. Misinformation about the fact that taxpayers would be paying for every single abortion. Misinformation about when people can safely and legally get an abortion currently misinformation about even the stage of development in utero at the time most people get a safe and legal abortion so i think the best we can do as people who are staunchly pro-choice and believe in the right to choose is attempt to understand where they're coming from, do your best to educate. And then at the end of the day, like if you're not getting anywhere with them, I really do believe in arguing for the sake of the audience. If you are talking to, I talk about this a lot. Again, I'm very blessed that this isn't my family, but I know I have a lot of friends who go home and maybe some of their aunts and uncles are anti-choice. And at that point, you're not arguing to try to convince your aunts and uncles. You're arguing to make sure that your cousins, their kids know that there's a different perspective and it's not just what they're being brought up with. So I think that that's equally, if not more important, it's not always about trying to get someone to change their opinion. It's about teaching people that yours is an opinion that can be had and is logical. Yeah. And, you know, I just also want to point out that We had an interview, an episode with a journalist named Jennifer Block, who wrote a book called Everything Below the Waste, Why Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution. And I recommend that to you and that you share it with every woman that you know, because that book is going to blow your mind. It's so clear to me, whether it's intentional or not out of neglect, how sexist and misogynistic the whole healthcare industry is from research, institutional research down to implementation, uh, and how negligent and just not caring, indifferent they are to women's bodies, and that there are products being sold to us that are knowingly harmful and just all these things. So to the extent that the ERA would force or companies that are marketing to us and research institutions, you know, to make sure that women's health is actually part of the equation when they're doing studies and not just coming up with random stuff to put into us or do to us. Um, I think it goes much more, much beyond the issue of abortion. So, 
you know, I want to call that out too. No, I want to completely agree something. Again, I've been thinking a lot about in the realm of healthcare is how often women are even like accidentally and unknowingly sexualized by our own doctors just because so many of these practices are like based off of sexism. My least favorite fact that I learned, first of all, gynecology in general has a very difficult history because the father of modern gynecology loved experimenting on black women and just kind of leaving them on slaves, black women slaves. Yeah, right. Yeah. To be entirely, yeah, enslaved black women and leaving them traumatized, leaving them with medical conditions. And so to start with, it's a field that has a lot of a messy background in history. And I think even today about some of our practices, like it is not the ideal way for a woman to give giving birth on one's back is not the most effective way to do it. Bodies were built so that we were meant to be giving birth like in a standing up or like squatting position with like gravity helping us. We were elevated to lie on our backs because one day a doctor said, you know, I think looking at a woman like that while she's giving birth would be really hot for me personally. And that just stuck. We still do that. That's part of the reason why it's so painful because you have, you don't have gravity working with you. And that's part of the way our bodies were designed. Another one is so often we see after birth when they're doing like reconstructive work that a doctor will give something called a husband stitch, which is when they create an extra stitch when they're reconstructing a vagina post birth to like make it tighter so a husband doesn't lose enjoyment which first of all oh my god that's ridiculous and often it happens to women unknowingly because they're maybe passed out they're not necessarily consenting to every single part of that medical procedure because they've just gone through something that's like really huge and energy giving as someone who like hasn't given birth before I don't know that for sure but everything I've heard from other people leads me to believe it's a huge and exhausting thing and it causes major health issues. It hurts when doctors do that. But because someone said, you know, what matters in this situation, not the health of the mother, the future pleasure of the father, that happens now. And I think you're absolutely right that issues of sexism in healthcare do not start and end with abortion. It ends with true bodily autonomy, which of course, abortion and reproductive rights are a huge part of, but Time and time again, we see women just stripped of their autonomy in these medical settings, whether it be, you know, something as intense as being denied a procedure, even just generally from a doctor, oh, no, I don't want to prescribe you that medication. I don't think it's good for you, even, you know, if you've done your research and you know that it's good for you. It's all about giving back autonomy in medical spaces. Yeah. So I think we've done a pretty decent job at outlining what the benefits are. Let's go to the status of the ERA. Um, You talked about the three additional states, you know, ratifying it. Can you, can you give an explanation, some context about the Department of Justice guidance and the archivist situation currently? Right. Um, So like I said, the Congress in 1970, 1972, or I guess the Senate in 1972, passed the Equal Rights Amendment with a seven-year deadline. They said, you need to get this done by 1979. If it's not done by then, it like 38 states must ratify in these seven years or else, boom, it's over. 
that, first of all, I want to say we've had a lot of Supreme Court cases saying that deadlines on ratifying amendments are hugely unconstitutional. Like there have been case after case after case about that. So this is something that's unconstitutional to begin with. Because of this huge counter movement you see to the ERA, particularly led by Phyllis Schlafly, a lot of conservative white women, particularly mothers, and also, to be fair, the first big stand of the anti-choice movement was probably a huge factor in this like counter movement to the ERA. To the ERA. They stop at 35 states. They don't get states 36, 37, 38. The Senate and the House pass it again with an extended deadline. No more states pass it. In 1980, it's mum. In the early 1980s, I mean, it's mum. When Nevada passes it in 2017, the National Archivist, who was a Trump appointee, files it and says, oh, look at this. 36 states have ratified the Equal Rights Amendment. When Illinois ratifies it in 2018, the archivist files it again. When Virginia ratifies it in 2020, the archivist says, nope, there's a deadline. I cannot file the 38th Amendment because I cannot file the 38th ratification because there's a deadline. There was a deadline. It was passed several years ago. So, nope, I'm just not, I'm simply not going to file it. There is a lawsuit about this that had happened where they said he had to file it. There's in Congress, people are passing legislation to our current legislation, which is SJ Res 1, HJ Res 17, I want to say. I should know that. So it's a, no, I was totally right. SJ Res 1, HJ Res 17. Those are uh, bills that would remove the deadline for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, meaning that it'd be good to go. But our partner organization on the letter, Free Speech for the People, said these deadlines are unconstitutional to begin with. 38 states have ratified this amendment. This amendment has been ratified. It just hasn't been written down in the Constitution yet. They believe, as do we, that this amendment has been passed. It's met all of the criteria. It's passed both the House and the Senate twice now, because if you recall, in the late 70s, early 80s, they already extended the deadline once. So it's passed both houses of Congress twice and 38 states have ratified. So in our letter, we said to the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, we wrote to him and said, listen, these deadlines are unconstitutional. It has passed the House and the Senate twice and 38 states have ratified. This is just a constitution. There's no reason. This is a part of the constitution. There is no reason why you need to be following the lead of these Trump rules and this Trump era appointee. You should put things in motion to make sure that this gets ratified into the Constitution and that it's, you know, written down as a part of the Constitution. That's what our letter said. And when we sent that, we were very proud of ourselves because, you know, we pride ourselves on working for the ERA on every angle, whether that be through the Department of Justice, through legislation and working with our legislators to make sure that within Congress, they extend the deadline, remove the deadline, whatever that may be to make sure it gets passed or even within the courts to make sure that the National Archivist is not allowed to get away with filing two, but not three of the ratifications. So that is what our letter to the Attorney General said. Let me just ask first, the letter basically assumes that 
what you said about the Supreme Court, that it's unconstitutional to have a deadline is true. And therefore, what the archivist is doing effectively is not permitted because the archivist is going against Supreme Court interpretation of deadlines for constitution, uh, for amendments. Have we heard anything back from Merrick Garland? We have not yet currently heard anything back from Merrick Garland. And believe me, I'm waiting. But we are also working to make sure we are not an organization, nor is our partner organization, Free Speech for People. We are not a group that's about to just send out a letter and just kind of let it sit until someone decides they want to get around with it. I know we're currently working with a group of federal legislators, hopefully, who will want to sign on to a similar letter, particularly in the House, since they just passed HJRS 17 a couple of weeks ago, saying that the deadline is removed to put together a letter saying to the AG, like, hi, we agree with these people. We can totally remove the deadline in Congress, but you don't have to wait for us to do that. You can get started on it now if you want. So a slightly toned down version of our letter, but still with the same purpose that if Merrick Garland wants to, you know, write down the Equal Rights Amendment on a piece of paper and staple it to the back of the Constitution today, that he absolutely can do that if he wants to, which he should, because, you know, equal rights. So, um, so I've been following this very closely. And as I mentioned in the beginning of our conversation, it's been very disappointing to me how not all women, not only not supported, but also are even aware of it, the ERA. Like sometimes I would just say ERA and people won't even know what it is that I have to say equal rights amendment. And even then they won't know what it is, you know, and this is women who are peers of mine, much, much more years to have been exposed to it than you. And so I'm wondering amongst all the quote unquote progressives that are in Congress, why there haven't been more women and prominent women politicians who have been very outspoken about it. Because I, I feel like it's not an issue that they've talked about, whereas all other issues they do, whether it's the gender wage gap or maternal health care, like they're not connecting the dots with the ERA. And also the media, I wanted to address that too, because when the news came out for each of these things that happened over the past year, there's barely any coverage of it by the media. So what are your thoughts about those two things? My thoughts is, my thoughts are without being a legislator myself, I know that oftentimes it is much easier to address the specific symptoms of a problem rather than its root causes, because very often those symptoms are specific and, you know, easily attackable. We can look at something like the wage gap and say, you know, let's make it illegal for employers to pay when men and women different amounts for the same amount of work. But it seems like it would generally be much harder to outlaw gender discrimination generally, you know, fixing the root causes. Funnily enough, we do have a solution to that. It's the Equal Rights Amendment. And I think it's just because oftentimes those fixes to the symptoms seem like much more reachable. And I mean, we do have to remember, unfortunately, the Equal Rights Amendment was gone out of public consciousness for like a good 40 years before making a comeback in 2017. We have to work and we are working really hard to make sure that not only are people aware of the Equal Rights Amendment, but they see it as a viable and winnable solution to issues of gender discrimination in this country. You know, 
we're fighting against a history of, unfortunately, this amendment was already beat down once. And I think we talk a lot in politics, to be fair, particularly more about candidates. But once you lose once, it's hard to win, you know? So I think we're fighting against that history as well as just against gender discrimination. Generally, we have to say the Equal Rights Amendment was good then. The Equal Rights Amendment is still good now. Here's why we need it passed, even though it was just ahead of its time, you know, 40 years ago when it got shot down. It's time for us to seriously take a look at this again. So that's a conversation we're trying to start with a lot of representatives, too. And I think we're doing a good job or as well as we can at doing that work. We go in for our advocacy meetings with these different representatives and senators. We make them aware of the fact that the Equal Rights Amendment is not just something that got passed to them in a packet of bills that they were going to be voting on in the next three weeks. It's a real movement for gender equality that's alive and well and with people who care about it and are willing to fight for it. And I think that that's one of the biggest parts of it, just showing representatives that like we're here and we care and that I think their support will follow. So what about the media? Why do you think the media has been so quiet about covering it? I think kind of similarly, the media has been quiet about covering it because there hasn't been anything huge federally happening with it lately. Again, because it's a root cause uh, rather than a symptom, there's also like less of a flashy story to go with it. You know, we stories come out of these unfortunate symptoms of this issue of gender equality. So then again, much like legislators, it's easier to look at these fixes for these symptoms instead of the root causes. So I think in a very similar way, the media is very much focused on what's in the news right now, like what's happening and what we're seeing are specific results of gender discrimination. And that's much easier to quantify and identify for an audience than gender discrimination in the general. In every space, because yeah. it's too overwhelming for them. It's almost like denial. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like it's dealing with like people who are kind of like, you know, domestic violence survivors who, who look at other relationships and they can identify that other people are being oppressed or not safe. And yet they can't look at their own relationship because it's too much to have to handle and respond to. So what strategies have you found have been the most successful in activating people to number one, like what makes people get it? And then the next thing is what makes people actually then want to take action? I think what makes people get it is really when we talk about the intersectionality of the issue and how many other issues it kind of connects with. Like we said, unfortunately, when we're talking to young people, a lot of times we're starting from point zero of what even is the Equal Rights Amendment. And we talk about how it overlaps with these issues that they might care about a lot. Environmentalism, LGBTQ equality, fighting for a better criminal justice system, all these things that they might care about, we show them how connected they are to gender equality and by extent and how connected they are to gender equality and then to the Equal Rights Amendment, that makes them understand, oh, all of these things are connected. And I think in the same way, that also helps them get really activated because I really think that people tend to have a couple of things that they really, really care about and are really, really passionate about and are willing to do everything for. And if we say, look at the Equal Rights Amendment, this is a great way for you to fight, you know, on the ground effects of global warming and make sure that people stay safe. 
we have a lot of environmental activists who are like, yes, absolutely. Let's get that done. I think that that's what really activates people, you know, figuring out how all these issues are interconnected and being able to fight for the things they care about on multiple fronts. So we just show them that the Equal Rights Amendment is one of many fronts they can be fighting for their own issues on. Yeah. And I completely agree with you. One of the things that we try to focus on educating our community about is how really gender inequality underpins all other forms of social, political, and economic inequality. And to the extent that you mentioned nuclear disarmament in the beginning, we interviewed someone who has been working on that issue. And during that episode, he had a great analogy that he used to talk about, you know, patriarchy and masculinity. You know, masculinity, people probably don't know, but we did several episodes about basically ecofeminism and the connection between people who have very strong, like masculine views and traditional masculine views of themselves and what they want to adhere to and how they're less likely to be interested in climate change. In fact, they're more likely to be climate crisis deniers and less likely to be engaged in green activity. And then obviously there's the impact in terms of climate crisis, the displacement impacting women and children more and the increase in sex trafficking that disproportionately harms women and children. So there's so much connection that if you address gender inequality, you could address all these other corollary effects. And so hopefully our conversation will make that clear too to the listeners. So we're at the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions called the Engendered Questionnaire. And our first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Oh my God, that is such a good question because I think it's something we don't think about a lot. We think a lot about, you know, how we're going to do these things, how are we going to end gender-based violence uh, against women? But we don't think about what's at stake and what's at stake is women's lives uh, and the lives of other gender minorities as well. Like in both in the physical, like people die based on violence against them, even when they don't, it affects, you know, how they work, how they eat, how they sleep every moment of their lives. I've been thinking a lot about lately. um, April is sexual assault awareness and prevention month. And as someone who lives on a college campus and does a lot of work surrounding Title IX, it's been a lot of learning for me this month. And I have thought a lot about the statistics that women who are assaulted on campus are more likely to drop out than women who aren't. And they're more likely to see their great, even more than that, those who don't drop out usually see a sharp decline in their GPA particularly if they're forced to stay on campus with their assaulter. It's not just the physical aspect and the physical health, but every single day, people who've experienced this violence have to live with it. And we're letting people pass by the wayside when we don't fight for them, you know? Like, we have to be doing this work because we can't let this happen to another person. We are so blessed that so many people are able to, you know, continue on surviving after all the horrors that they've been through, but we need to make sure that no one goes to those horrors ever again. So that's what's at stake in ending gender-based violence. What gives you hope? Oh, what gives me hope is the younger people in my organization. 
I should start with, as a college sophomore, most of Generation Ratify's membership is a lot younger than me. I really got started doing this organizing work, particularly in activist spheres, when I was like a junior in high school. I, like a lot of my peers, we were really kind of brought into this learning kind of period of our activist careers by the election of Donald Trump. We learned a lot in the lead up to that election, a lot in the fallout in terms of who it was affecting, and then got really activated and started organizing um, after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in the like gun violence prevention sphere. But I look at some of the people in Generation Ratify who are like eighth graders and freshmen in high school and are already like leading their state chapters and going on lobby days and talking to representatives. I say this a lot. I train people for their lobby days. And every single time I finish a lobby day training, I'm like, wow, that gives me hope because I just told 40 people how to advocate to their representatives and now they know how to do it. And I know that that's far from the last time any of them are going to do it. I just, you know, even if I train them again, even if other people train them again, I started them on what is for a lot of people their first time going into a lobbying meeting because we're such a youth-focused organization. So that's what gives me hope seeing how much effort the younger members of my organization are putting in and thinking about how I have to work harder to make sure that they have everything that they're meant to be having in life. <laughs> and final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Oh, that is a good question. I think something we can all do more of is talk to each other. I think a lot of times women are scared to share their stories of gender-based violence or gender people in any gender minority are scared to share their experiences with violence because it's traumatizing. And I've also talked to a lot of survivors who feel hurt or even like embarrassed to bring it up because they're like, how could I let this happen to me? But I think by talking about it with each other and giving each other that space to heal and to learn, not only do we become stronger for it, we teach each other our experiences. I know I have learned a lot of red flags to look out for in certain types of people because of conversations I've had with my sorority sisters who said, yeah, people who do this thing, like keep an eye out for them. And I can't even think about how many times that has saved me or made me safer on a particular evening. I think just by teaching each other and looking out for each other in a more explicit way than we do already, we can make it much more obvious to each other and those who wish to enact violence onto gender minorities that like it's not something that they're going to get away with easily. Additionally, something that we can always start if you haven't been doing it already is look into your local community and your local law enforcement and see what their records are on issues of gender-based discrimination and violence. Like how often do men who get cited with domestic abuse by the police actually get called in for questioning or actually get a charge for it? How many, you know, untested rape kits are sitting in your local police department office? I really encourage critically looking at the law enforcement uh, locally, because that's where all the change is going to happen on these type of issues it's locally. So I really, really strongly support investigating your local law enforcement and trying to figure out what best you can about 
what their goings on are. And a hint is if it's really hard to figure things out, that means there's probably stuff that they don't want to be telling people. And that means bad. So start poking around there if you haven't already. That's something we can all start. Thank you so much, Rachel. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And I hope that the next time we connect, there's going to be positive news to share and celebrate about the ERA. Thank you so much for having me. And yes, I hope so. I think that would be lovely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.